0: I think you've got to read the, like you read the mountains, you read the water, same with following the weather, you know, that this certain weather patterns coming in, that's going to do this in the mountains, but it's going to do this in the river. And, you know, especially on the, on the coast here where, you know, maybe it's, that also decides whether you're going to go pow skiing or go steelhead in that next day is like, well, it's going to probably be better on the river than it is in the mountains so we should probably stay in the valley or you know sometimes it goes the other other way and it's like well it's going to be a really good day up top so we should probably go do some skiing
1: some days you can do both
2: Welcome to In the Bucket, the podcast that explores the culture of spay fishing in the Pacific Northwest, a spectacular land of mountains and wild rivers, where every cast has a story to tell. I'm your host, Brian Niska. Today, I'm joined by Riley LeBeau, Kai Peterson, and the legendary Feet Banks. These guys are all enthusiastic steelhead anglers with interesting stories to tell. Riley's a retired pro skier and talented filmmaker. Kai is one of the most influential free skiers in the world, and Feet is a writer who also happens to be the editor of Mount Life magazine. Stick around with us today as we explore the connection between life on the mountains and chasing fish in the valley. These guys have some great insight for anyone looking to fish for early season winter steelhead. All right, let's get going. It's time to get in the bucket. I should tell the listeners, I was fortunate enough to, to host these guys at our lodge this past winter, sometime in late March the boys came up for what was supposed to be a bit of a ski slash fishing trip. And, and honestly, it turned into more of a fishing trip. Riley, you, I think you're probably of the group. You're the guy with the most steelhead experience, aren't you?
0: Yeah. I mean, I've been doing it for, for a little while now. I kind of, uh, I didn't really start getting into chasing like an Adramis fish until I moved out to Squamish, which was about, um, 15 years ago. And, uh, and kind of grew up fishing and camping a little bit but really spent most of my time in the mountain skiing and then kind of as a result of living in squamish we have these amazing salmon runs and that kind of got me into fishing around here and then that eventually led into into steelheading and kind of kind of the same traditional arc that i think a lot of people have um and uh so i just started spending more more time on the uh on the rivers and especially in the winter too we've got a you know, we have winter steelhead and squamish here as well, and uh you know like uh, like you're saying it's it can be a little bit of a supper fest, but it's um you know I think maybe mountain people are drawn to that a little bit as well, you know, cold hands in the mountains, you probably don't mind having cold hands in the river as well, so yeah been uh, been steelheading for a little while now.
2: the steelhead thing's tough for folks who haven't done it to to understand, and it's diverse I mean, you've got people that fish for steelhead in the summer, you've got people that fish for steelhead in the winter. Um, before we jump into it with Kai, in case the folks listening aren't aware of the difference between a summer steelhead and a winter steelhead, I thought I'd throw in a little background. So genetically, these are all rainbow trout and that's important because not all steelhead will, will choose to go to the ocean. Some will residualize, stay in the river, live the life of a resident trout. Now, all these folks, like any, all these fish, like any rainbow trout are going to spawn in the spring. So in most areas, steelhead spawning is going to take place in May and June. Like rainbow trout everywhere however we, we put them in these two boxes we call them summer steelhead we call them winter steelhead so typically a, a summer steelhead is going to leave the ocean sometime in the summer july august even a little bit later and they're going to come up the river system taking advantage of the the consistent fairly high flows of of summer and a system that's got summer steelhead typically has a couple of ingredients one is is either a lake or a canyon And the big part about this is having enough water to navigate through that canyon and then also having a place to overwinter. So these fish are going to come out of the ocean in the summer, um, be available to anglers in the summer and the fall. They're going to overwinter under the ice. And then after winter, they're going to spawn in the spring like rainbow trout. Now, what we're here today to talk about are winter steelhead. Winter steelhead are a little bit different. They, They don't tend to run as far. They wait until conditions are optimal, meaning the snow's starting to melt, their, their streams are bumping up, then they come in and get ready to do their thing. So th- these are fish that anglers are going to target uh, in this part of the world, at least mostly February, March, and April. And it's interesting you brought up the, the Squamish, Riley, because, man, the Squamish is one of my favorites. And the Squamish is really unique because the Squamish is big water steelheading. And what I mean by that is if you think about the size of a river that, that people are fishing for winter steelhead, There's not a lot of them that are bigger than the Squamish, at least in BC and the Skeena, we're going to get into that, but the Skeena is definitely one of them. So Kai, you're famous as a big mountain skier, you know, you're a mountaineer when it comes to steelhead fishing. I know you, you do it all. You you're hiking into little small Canyon streams, creeks, if you will. Uh, This was sort of your first foray into big water steelheading this spring on the Skeena. What were the takeaways for you?
3: Well, first, the vistas, I would say, just being in such a big landscape was, I think, the coolest part for me, being able to fish like a giant tailout where the, the water is so big that you can't even see the next run below it. You know what I mean? That was really cool for me. And uh, kind of just feeling that, that risk of like, it was low water, so we were walking out into like kind of wild parts in the tailouts, And I don't know, I thought that was really cool. Yeah, probably 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 my favorite part as well is just seeing the size of these winter spring fish and mosquito is just pretty pretty mind blowing.
2: <laughs> so for the listener, you should definitely uh check out the video that, that these guys made. Uh, you can find it on YouTube. We'll we'll post a link on the website. In the video, Kai, you make a comment that that I think is is pretty profound and that you say, Hey, when, when you're out here and you see the fish, you see the landscape, they really match each other.
3: Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like yeah, I think I forget what I said, but you know, especially on the skina, fishing big big water like a it feels like a needle in a haystack looking for, you know, fish in there. Really like it's not really true because there is, you know, spots you kind of know they should be sitting, but it, even those spots are so big compared to, you know, maybe a smaller mid-sized river. But yeah, it's like when you do find a fish it, it kind of makes sense it's you know that we weren't finding any small fish let's put it that way i guess you know and then the mountains around you are all towering over huge peaks um the river's massive you know we're fishing pretty close to the ocean too so like down there the the whole landscape just kind of gets wider and bigger as do the fish you know so it's pretty cool
2: yeah. You know, I, I have memories of being on the lower Skina, and you can hear avalanches going later on in the year. Um, same thing happens on the Squamish, as you guys know. It, it's kind of neat to see nature work in that way. And you're just a part of it. And the big part of the, the, the winter steelhead experience is understanding freezing levels, understanding water temperature and freezing levels and how the two relate. I know from my time in Whistler, I used to always pay attention to the Whistler Alpine forecast. Where's the freezing level up in Whistler? That's going to give me some idea of what to expect in the Squamish and, and how the two relate to each other is really important because the fish are aggressive. You present the fly halfway decent, they're going to grab it, but they're not always there. So the mental aspect of winter steelheading, and I'm going to ask you about this in a second feed, is, is how do you stay in the game when you haven't landed a fish yet? Once you've landed a fish, you're like, oh, I get it. But if you haven't landed a fish yet, how do you stay mentally tuned up to put the hours in, Mr. Feed Banks?
1: Well, I mean, for me personally, it's not a a chore to be out there, especially with a couple buddies like Riley and Kai, or, you know, now that I've been up to the lodge a few times to be with Mikey or Adrian, and these are your friends. So you're in a beautiful place with your friends and you're presented with a puzzle, which is a combination of sort of knowing where you want to put the fly and then how to make your body get it there in a somewhat decent way and you're probably you just I I look at it like every cast I do hopefully I'm going to be better prepared for the next one and and you tell yourself if I can if I can do a cast well enough I'm I'm in hopefully the right place there could be a fish there then I'll get it so the the promise the tantalizing promise just in front of your face is always there and then you just have to turn around and look around it's such an incredible place You know, you're dressed properly so you're not cold. The sun is out often, hopefully. It's a beautiful landscape. You've got good people around you. Like, you know, that's good enough. It's the same it's the same as going up the ski hill. You know, if if you can't go up and have fun on a on a hard pack day, like maybe take a look at what it means to you to have fun because you're in a beautiful place with good people. It's if it's not fun for you, there might be something wrong with you, not the sport.
3: Yeah.
2: You bring up an interesting point there about about dressing kai uh, riley do you guys have anything to add so for folks who haven't done it for how they might want to layer to deal with these cold water temperatures
3: i always layer to layer so you can change in and out quickly you know like being like just having a lot of layers i I find the best so then you can easily adjust because sometimes throughout the day like especially like fishing on my own or with just one or two buddies when we're hiking around a lot you got to kind of be able to adjust you know you might you might be hiking a lot for a little while and then be stopped a lot for a while so just having good layers um i always like to have like a, a pretty nice tight hood in my under layer too that's kind of almost like a bella clava style um hood and then uh yeah, that's, that's that's my go.
1: The hood is essential on the boat ride in in the morning. That's for sure. That's the coldest part of your day, I think.
3: Mm-hmm, yeah. And, like, to what Feet was just talking about with the friends uh, on the river things, like, so key. And, and fishing that big water, what I've realized is uh, I really enjoy fishing the big water rivers with more people. Um, like, I'll fish small water with, like, on my own or with like one other buddy is usually best for, for me at least. But then I really like the like team aspect of going to these massive runs on the Skeena and you break, you're breaking it up. You know, you got like, you got like three or four buddies and you just walk into this, this massive run, like this small army of homies and friends or whatever, and just like pick it apart. Like one guy here, one guy there, one guy there you know second third guys waiting further out maybe first guys fishing in close you're just like as a team you're covering this like beautiful massive piece of water where sometimes fishing like these small steelhead rivers like little coastal rivers or whatever i'd rather go by myself almost you know because there's like sometimes these tiny little runs where like you know there's if there's a fish there it's gonna be one guy can easily cover that water you know so I, i just thought that was kind of a Interesting part of the skina, you know, and being able to go to a huge run, have a little, a beautiful little fire on the beach, and just kind of like pick this huge run apart with a bunch of friends and like, you know,
0: have mm-hmm. such a good time as a team. It's, it's really unique experience. I think you're the odds are kind of stacked against you. So when you're out there with your buddies on those big runs, it's like any fish that someone gets or any grab, anything that's like a team fish, it's like for everyone. Everyone's celebrating. If it's, you know, if it's, not on the end of your line that doesn't matter you're celebrating your buddy's fish like as much as you would your own so it's definitely like brings in this team element which you don't i don't know don't find a lot in fishing maybe that's
2: interesting point riley for the folks listening you were the one that that edited the movie and as well you were on the other side of the lens um catching fish the the team aspect that you guys just talked about really comes through in the movie and in a very authentic way because you just you know just what was happening and you know, that is kind of rare. There's not a ton of fisheries out there where, you know, anglers are actually happy to have other people with them. It's it, often it's, it's sort of something we, we strive to do on our own. Like Kai was talking with the smaller waters question for you guys. I want to really quickly go back to the cold cause it's something sort of a barrier to a participation for a lot of folks with winter steelheading. They don't want to have cold feet. They don't want to have cold hands. We talked about layering. That's great. Uh, a lot of our clients at the lodge will show up with boot foot waders. Um, some of our guides will oversize their wading boot and use a product called a Bama boot. It's basically a, a similar thing to what loggers or commercial fishermen might wear under their rubber boots. And it's just something to wick away moisture and a little bit more insulation. Any of you guys have issues with, with cold feet in the river and any, any pro tips on for people listening on how to how to get the feeling back in their toes
3: if they lose them?
1: I'll go first and just say, I like Merino wool socks with a poly layer underneath and that's it for me go ahead kai
3: i was gonna say the same exact thing i I just always wear a thinner yeah like a poly sock like a thin kind of ski sock i would wear thin socks skiing you know and then i'll wear a thicker wool sock outside of that so whatever boots i have i'll make sure i can fit a thin sock under um, a thicker wool sock and that really helps
0: yeah, I think having just a little bit more room in your in your boot too lets the blood flow into your feet if you're crammed into some really tight boots and it cuts off the off the circulation to your feet and that's when you get cold but um
1: that's that's a nice thing even the shittiest fishing boot is way more comfortable than the best ski boot so i
2: I don't know if the guides did it for you, but a little trick that that we kind of keep in our back pocket if people do get cold is you take you bring along a thermos of hot water. And you, uh, you charge the people's boots for them by pouring hot water on them. <laughs> and that works pretty good.
1: Yeah, never done that. That's smart.
2: Hey, this is guide, old guide tricks. There's a few of them. But the funny thing with the fire, you know, the, you show up with the clients. You, they're worried about being cold. You build them a fire They, you know, something about that gives them a level of comfort. But the real person who benefits is the guide that builds the fire, getting warm, building that fire. So, you know, to me, if I think about winter steelhead fishing, man, there's always a fire there. And like you guys said, the camaraderie is cool. And I keep coming back to the movie because I think everybody listening should try and check it out because I believe it accurately captures the winter steelhead experience. But feet um, still haven't landed a steelhead, but you've hooked them.
1: I saw I saw one.
2: You saw one. You saw it up pretty close. That's to me. That's one of the best parts of the whole movie. You, You have this fish on. Um, spoiler alert, you lose it. The camera's right in your face right away. You've been working years to get this fish. You know, it looked like you were a little conflicted there. What what was going through your mind?
1: Well, I mean, definitely when you hook a fish, you want to get as close as you can to it. Right. Um, you want to see it, you want to, you want to fight it to, to the shore, to the net, to whatever, and, uh, and then let it go. Right. And that's a complete experience. And so when it gets away, there is a bit of an incomplete feeling or a, you know, a, a score unsettled. At the same time, like you said, I did get to have a good fight with this fish. I got a pretty good look at it in in action. You can feel the strength. You can see the splashing. You know, it's still a, a really incredible experience. And yeah, maybe I didn't get the uh, obligatory Instagram photo, but, you know, we got lots of photos from that trip. And, and my fish was, I think, smaller than the guys fish anyhow so uh also there's a camera in your face you're making a movie you know it's it's best to put your adult pants on and maybe not just unleash a stream of uh expletives and foul language and 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 stuff like that right that's part of life and it's really part of fishing if if you were going to catch every single fish you hooked i don't think as many people would fish right like it's a it's the highs and the lows that make it a a real experience worth coming back to but, yeah, I would like to catch a fucking fish one day before I fucking die. That's for sure.
3: Kai, <laughs> do you remember your first steelhead? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I kind of set out to – to uh, I, like I had got really hooked on fly fishing already through like mostly dry fly fishing for rainbow trout in the summer. Um, I was really into the dry fly thing. And then the steelheading thing came just because, you know, so my friends were doing it like with Riley and uh, I was like, fuck, I got to figure this, this out. This seems cool. Um, I hadn't got into spay casting yet. I, cause I just fished single hand rods. So I was like, fuck it. I'm going to catch, I want to catch one of these things on a, on a single hand rod. So I kind of set out in Squamish to do that. Um, and I, I can't say I fished like a shit, like a, a whole ton all season to try to get one, but I fished, i because i live in pemberton so it's it's a bit of a drive to go down to squamish i'd kind of go down for a couple days at a time and fish pretty hard and just kind of tried to learn a few runs and figured like uh, riley and these guys had a pretty dialed so i kind of learned a few spots from them and then i'd hike around on my own and find what i thought seemed like good water as i learned more about them a few older friends kind of mentored me and stuff like that too a little bit but uh yeah so i remember those i went down for a few days i fished real hard and that that day i the first deal that i caught i fished all day and i covered a ton of water in different parts in the valley actually kind of drove around to different spots and it was just fishing a lot and then it was sort of the end of the day and i kind of had given up hope riley had already fished through this this run that we kind of fish often it's sort of a, a really good run that definitely holds fish but uh yeah. I think he hooked a bull trout or something right before that. And I just showed up. He would already been fishing there for a bit. And then, uh, freaking yeah. Hooked one, um, r- randomly, <laughs> but yeah, I was, I was fishing on like a seven weight single hand rod for the whole, the whole season. And I told myself I'd, I'd do this fake casting thing figure it out once I kind of learned more about these fish. And I'm like, just like feet was talking about, if it was easy, no one would want to do it. Um, And that's kind of my life. Everything I've done, I get hooked on things that are difficult. You know, I grew up skateboarding and skiing and uh, climbing and all these sports that are really frustrating, you know, and really hard, at least for someone that wants to be good at it. You know, it it takes dedication. You can't walk away from it. You kind of have to like put your head down and, and make it happen. so that was like, that's what got me into the, the fishing, you know, and the fly fishing. So I did that. And, um, yeah. I ended up hooking two, two fish in that run that afternoon with Riley. And, uh, the second one I, I lost stupidly. I probably should have changed my fly that I think the leader got a bit chafed on the fish's mouth before that. But anyways, yeah. So landed a beautiful little, I don't know, maybe eight pounds at most steelhead and, and, uh, Riley tailed it for me. It was, it was a pretty beautiful experience.
2: That's awesome. How about you, Riley? Do you remember your first steelhead?
0: Yeah, pretty vividly actually. It was, um, I was fishing with my uncle who is kind of like my mentor in fishing. He kind of, he's been a diehard fly fisherman for, um, for the, his whole life as well. And, uh, so I got, I got invited on, um, kind of this special trip that they do, uh, they do in the fall and, uh, got to tag along on that. And I just kind of started spay fishing, um, spay casting kind of earlier that year. So I could, you know and get the get the shooting head out there a little bit but wasn't by no means a a a good caster um but we uh it was the last day of my trip and i was heading home heading home like i think probably that afternoon and uh yeah right right around noon um hooked into this uh this beauty beauty probably uh 12 pound buck and it went crazy before I even really knew I had anything on the end of my line. It was jumping on the far side of the river and looking upstream and the thing just put on a, put on a show. And, uh, it was a great fight. Got it, got it into the net and, uh, just fell out of its mouth and it actually bent the hook out of, uh, out of my fly. So it was kind of just a miracle that the thing ended up making it into the net to begin with. But, uh, yeah, my uncle was like, he was, he was almost in tears. It was like really, really nice. He's So he's such a passionate, passionate fly fisher that he's like to see me catch my first steelhead and for him to be there for that was like such a, such a, you know, cool experience. And it was for me too. That was like, that was, um yeah, probably my most memorable fish of my life really was that one for sure.
2: Yeah. Awesome. You know, it's a, it's a funny thing because, the, the first steelhead you ever hook, most people will will lose it. I have this saying that one fish can change everything, and I'll give you a couple quick examples so the fishing lodge that we have, the previous owner is a German fellow names Dieter, and Dieter came over from Germany to visit a buddy of his, and he went out on the Skeena. This wasn't fly fishing; this was bar fishing, but which is using a spinning glow in on a set line, and he lands a fish it's like sixty eight pounds goes home to Germany, wraps up his career, comes out to BC. We're going to have a fishing lodge. You want to fish all the time. So that one fish altered the course of his life a bit. Another one, I'm going to use this uh, guy's real name because he won't mind. His name is Bob Johnson. One of my favorite clients. He's a buddy. Uh, Bob hooked his first steelhead in the Squamish River, uh, a run that we call Fatlip. You guys probably know the spot. It's midway between uh, the mouth of the Cheakamus and Fisherman's Park where the power line goes across. And it was Bob's first day steelheading. And it was mid-February, so that's kind of early for the Squamish. It was actually Valentine's Day. I remember that. And it was a typical early mid-February day. It was kind of half rain, half snow. The The snow line was about 200 feet above where, where we were fishing. Uh, Bob was not a quick study on the, on the casting. He, you know, it was a lot of work. And he got the line out there and the current straightened it below him. And I'll be darned if... 15 to 17 pound chrome bright steelhead didn't snatch that thing up from just below him. uh, Jumped up in the air so we could all see it a bunch and then took off down the rapid below fat, fat lip. And uh, Bob wasn't sure what to do. So he cramped his hand on the, the reel and the handle whacked him real good and almost broke his knuckle. So that was a memory for him. And that fish was gone. So there you go. And Bob put, much like feet, Bob put many, many trips and many hours in a variety of locations before he finally landed a steelhead. But now, today, Bob is one of the best steelheaders I know. So, you know, you mentioned skateboarding, Kai. I wouldn't dare. I'd break myself. You can't dabble in skateboarding. Skateboarding is, is you know, there's a level of commitment there that you don't find in a lot of of. Sports And I hesitate to call it a sport because I think for a lot of people, it's deeper than that. It's, it's, you know, it's a mode of transportation for the way of life. Uh, I've never been a skateboarder, but I know that to become proficient at skateboarding, you're going to have some, some stories and some scars,
3: eh? Yeah, for sure. Um, it truly is a lifestyle. Uh, and I think, you know, there is like a saying over a lot of skateboarders that you'll hear. It's like skateboarding saves, you know, take, you know, I think it, it saves people's lives in a sense that they maybe they would have, you know, if they don't have that kind of dedication to focus on, they might get sidetracked with other things that aren't as healthy, you could say. But uh, yeah, like if you, you know, it, you, you have to pay attention <laughs> while you're skateboarding, obviously, and uh, put in the time and the work. So in that sense, it, it, it's much like that. I would say similar to steelheading in, in a way and as would say maybe the backcountry be or riding in like really, you know, serious, um, big mountains where it takes time to understand and learn when those gates are open to allow you in and, and, and how to read that terrain and stuff. So and skateboarding, maybe not so much that, but more so, um, gaining comfort and an understanding and feel under your feet.
2: One of the neat things about fishing um, in general, not, not just steelheading, but fishing in general, is it works well in, in multi-generations. I don't know if that translates to skateboarding, Kai. You can probably skateboard with your kids, but I think there's not a ton of grandparent skateboarders out there. But you can be a grandparent skier and, and show the young whippersnappers what's up. And when it comes to fishing, man, you can fish right till the end. Um, personally, the big draw for me with with fishing has has always been what you were alluding to their feet is it's a, it's a lower impact thing, right? And one of the things I noticed uh, in Whistler with the shop, and this is actually kind of inspiration for this podcast. I got to tell you, and, and looking at my screen, it, it's it's relevant to you guys for sure is a lot of professional skiers and snowboarders end up as anglers. And it's maybe something that they've been involved with throughout their whole life. And what I saw in in Whistler with a few specific examples were were guys who had an injury but they still wanted to be active and still wanted to be doing stuff and so all of a sudden fishing came to the forefront
1: i mean it has that excitement you know there's there's peaks of excitement and peaks of calm peacefulness which is not that different from being up the ski hill you know you're even when we're out there together you're still alone you know we're not talking to each other until we kind of reconvene so you're alone but you're with your buddies you know, sort of like skiing, you're together on a chairlift and then you rip around and, and you're by yourself when you're actually doing the act. So I can see why it would re- why it would translate for sure. You know, I think of a lot of good buddies like Tobin Sutherland, Dave Sheets, you know, skiers at a high level that were absolutely passionate about fishing and, and especially steel hitting.
0: For me, I found myself kind of, you know, through my ski career as kind of a backcountry skier, um, towards the end of it, I... I felt myself like my, my risk tolerance in the mountains was really changing. And I, I kind of was tired of putting myself in, um, kind of these more risky, um, risky places so often. And what I found with, with fishing was I could still get to these amazing wild places, but you know, it's, you're, you're not worried about, uh, you know, an avalanche taking you out or there was just, it was a lot less risk to just go out and enjoy a day of fishing where I could still get that, you know, amazing time in the wilderness in these incredible places. But um, for me, it was, um, you know, just a little bit of a less impact, um, you know, kind of thing, which I really kind of gravitated towards. I got that fix of being, you know, out in the middle of the nowhere, but, you know, maybe it was, uh, there's a little bit r- less risk involved in doing it. So
2: one, one question I wanted to ask you guys as anglers and, and, you know, professional snow sports athletes, what type of experience from the mountaintop do you bring to the valley bottom that helps you as an angler?
3: Well, I think for, for me, what sort of, it's really this, the similarities of like reading mother nature for me is what kind of got me, especially with the steelheading, you know, um, But being able to read what Mother Nature is doing and kind of react to that to find these fish is really attractive. And um, I've always chased water my whole life. Uh, You know, I grew up in the mountains or on the beach with my yeah, growing up with my family. So yeah, I was always like surfing um, or skiing and and or being by rivers. So learning to follow the water from you know snow on a peak to a glacier to all the way down to the ocean is is really it's just fun to understand mother nature and no matter what kind of fishing it is um it's like like uh, yesterday I, I, I was fishing in in the ocean here where I am at right now and it turns into like this it's like I never played video games but I think it's like a real life video game playing with mother nature <laughs> I think it's really uh really fun so yeah learning learning to read you know as the water um changes uh, uh, what you know it's that's really attractive to me
0: i think you've got to read the like you read the mountains you read the water same with following the weather you know that this certain weather pattern is coming in that's going to do this in the mountains but it's going to do this in the river and you know especially on the on the coast here where you know, maybe it's, that also decides whether you're going to go pow skiing or go steelhead that next day is like, well, it's going to probably be better on the river than it is in the mountains. So we should probably stay in the Valley or, you know, sometimes it goes the other, other way. And it's like, well, it's going to be a really good day up top. So we should probably go do some skiing.
1: Some days you can do both. Very true. For me, it's, I, I don't, I never skied at the level that these two guys do. I was, you know, I was always, the guy with the camera bag, or, you know, just not getting out there as far. And, and the same with fishing. I'm at that point in my fishing career, long though it may be, where I'm still quite inexperienced. So I just enjoy, you know, the trip, a fishing trip or a ski trip, you know, you're going and you're doing something with people that you've, Everyone's carved out a time of their life to do this thing together, and it's a shared experience, and I I don't fish alone that much, and, and part of that is because I still have a lot to learn, and I love going with people that I can learn from, and the other part of it is because I also enjoy that that shared human experience where you can go do something together and create memories and, and you know, spend time with people that you enjoy being around, and the fact that you're fishing, all the better, or skiing or whatever it is. That, that's how it is for me.
2: I noticed feet. Uh, you, you, people may recognize your name. You're the editor of Mount Life Magazine. Mount Life Magazine lately has featured a fair amount of fishing.
1: Yeah, I, I wish it was called Fishing Life. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's definitely my my fault that it's fe- been featuring fishing. But but as you said, a lot of the people that enjoy these other mountain sports, because you look at rock climbing or like you know really high consequence skiing or a bit also to skateboarding or it's it it's like Kai said you're unlocking a puzzle right what, here's the rock what are the moves what's the sequence here's the mountain i've got to read this i've got to understand what's going to happen if i go here here's the river what's this water doing what's the bottom look like how can i tell what's underneath by looking at the top of the water so you're unlocking all these puzzles and the kind of people that's drawn to one aspect of that i think will enjoy all aspects so the, the fishing fits right in there's definitely you know, a whole, I get letters for sure about the ridiculousness of catch and release fishing and how you're just torturing fish and, and all that kind of stuff. And I always just reply like, you sound like you need to spend more time fishing.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think there's like fish when people ask me like, why, why, why is it your, why is it you like it? Or you're so into it? It's, you know, it's kind of a hard thing to answer to someone that doesn't understand, especially when they don't understand like fly fishing, the difference in different styles of fishing and whatnot. But it's like, like feet said, it's like unlocking this puzzle, but it, it also like unleashes so many different emotions, you know, like there's not just one reason I do it. There's like so many different emotions and feelings that go along with it. And, uh, and, you know, so many, it's, it's, you know, a physical, mental, maybe spiritual journey and all of it, you know? So yeah, there's a million reasons why, why people like to fly fish, I believe.
1: Yeah. And people have been fishing for about as long as there's been people. So that, that plays a role too. You know, this is something that as, as a species, we've pretty much always done and, and you're tapping into a little bit of that and then standing in a river, you know, that's been there since long before any of us were alive or any of our ancestors were alive and is going to be there long after, you know, there's this vast sense of, you know, being in the flow of, History and existence and and reality and uh, I know I like that.
3: Yeah, you get to see things change, which is really cool. I think seeing how the world works. Like if you live in a city your whole life, you're not going to learn anything about the world. But you spend time on the ocean and see the tides change and how that affects the animals. And same with the river, you see the snow melt in the mountains and how it changes the river and the sun and the cloud and the rain and affects all the animals in the river and then. You know, same with the mountains, you get to see the seasonal change and how that affects, you know, everything below it too. So it's just this cool cycle and learning that cycle and then playing a game that like, like game fishing, sport fishing is like, you have to understand so much about the planet to be successful. Whether it's like steelheading where you're like, you know, steelheading is like finding the fish is cool. Or you're like flats fishing where you're like, okay, there's fish here how the frick do we sneak up on these things how do we hunt them you know or it's like still water fish they're all so different from each other and there's so many different um emotions like I said that go into you know being successful in all these different styles of fishing I think it just becomes addicting trying to understand mother nature and and uh yeah that's that's what it's all about
1: and one of those emotions is frustration, right? And frustration's good for you in the long run, you know, especially if you can overcome it and, and then get a reward. And you
2: can't discount luck. Yeah, totally. I was saying it comes from Brad zero, but it's uh, regurgitated all the time. I tell the clients I'd rather be lucky than good because you can't discount luck. And that's the sense of humor with steelheading is, is Bob Johnson's story. You know, he doesn't know what he's doing. Hooks beautiful fish, people fish years to catch. Uh, it's good to be lucky
3: yeah yeah well i was i was up uh up in on the balkley in uh in october and um my girlfriend just got into fly fishing this this summer and it was like her third day steelheading, um second day spay casting and she no one else hooked a fish that day she had a couple bumps in the morning and then landed a beautiful big buck in the afternoon (laughs) so it's funny how it works that way sometimes. Um, but you have to fish well all day, and that's what she did, you know. She 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 tried really hard, and uh, it worked. But it's also, like, really good anglers, I've noticed. Like, I've done a fair bit of, uh, like, saltwater fishing for bonefish, permit, and tarpon now. And, uh, like, the permit, for instance, which is said to be the just, like, the steelhead's the hardest anadromous or freshwater fish, I believe, to catch, you know. Even though sometimes it's not, but uh, the permit's the hardest for sure in, in the ocean and in on the flats. And you have to lay down really good casts all day long. You get lucky, maybe one out of ten cat, good casts and follows from a permit. They'll actually decide to suck in that fly and eat it. But if if four out of ten of those casts are are crap or not good enough, you know your chances go way down. So if you're if you're fishing really well all day your chances go up even though there's luck you know even though it's it's a luck thing that that one fish is like the hungry one that wants to eat if you're not laying 10 out of 10 good casts it's going to take twice as long or twice as many casts to finally get one so there's it's luck plus skill and i think that's why you know fly fishing is so unique
1: one thing i also like is you know on this trip we're launching a boat down snow at a snowed in launch. Like it's an adventure, you know, we got right. We, we finish fishing for the day and Riley's got to back the Toyota up and make a, a rope out of tie down straps and, and figure out a way to get this heavy boat back up. And onto. the, you know, we're, we're we're running and gunning, which is something that's always fun.
0: The adventure side of it's huge. That's like, that's, that's what it's all about. It's about the adventure for sure. New challenge every day or, Problem solving, you're a little bit of MacGyvering involved usually. And yeah, that's uh, the adventure is all part of it. That's, I don't know, places where Steelhead lives, it takes a bit of an adventure to get there. So that's that's kind of the fun part.
2: So is it the math is is something like luck plus skill times effort or something like that.
1: I think they say luck is where hard work meets opportunity. Something like that. Oh, I like that.
3: Yeah.
2: Riley, we talked about Toyota there. Um I know Toyota was one of the sponsors of the the film and and you yourself a Toyota driver. Um what can you tell us about Toyota and why they would want to, you know, promote fishing?
0: Yeah, I guess like, I've been an ambassador um with them for Uh, a number of years now I've been a lifelong uh Toyota enthusiast and uh actually when I was first starting out my ski career I worked as a car salesman at Vernon Toyota and was selling selling Toyotas to uh pay for my uh, ski seasons in the winter and stuff so I kind of come from a a long line of uh Toyota owners and um but they uh they wanted to kind of get more involved in the fishing industry because they're they're you know they're a lot of outdoorsy people love driving Toyotas. They're reliable. They'll get you there and they'll get you back. And so they, um, I had been doing a little bit of work with Fishing BC as well. So I kind of uh, just connected those dots and put them together. So they uh, they found a good partnership with Fishing BC and that kind of opened the door for us to kind of do this trip up north with you, Brian. So they kind of came in and were supporting of that. So it was it's been great um, working with them. And seeing them kind of support these uh these projects that we've been working on.
2: It's crazy how many fishing guys drive Toyotas. <laughs> yeah. Everybody if everyone is a fishing guide up here has a Toyota, it
0: seems. And and you know what? You 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 see a you see a Tacoma parked on the side of a river, uh, you know, maybe there's a fishing sticker on the back. You know that's a spot that you should probably walk into. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't put a sticker on the back of your truck. That's how that's how I found lots of spots on the Squamish River. Was just like, oh. I know that guy's a guide, so there must be a, there's probably a decent spot if I walk in here. Yeah.
3: <laughs> Everyone's got a, a Tacoma with a, with a whatever steelhead sticker on the back of the window. <laughs> it's funny. And then they, and then they, you know, get protective about their spots. But yeah, it's funny. You should probably not put that sticker and park right in front of it.
1: <laughs> Brian, do you see that up there where people are protective of their spot or up north it's big enough there's enough space for everyone?
2: You know what? The funniest group of people up here feet are the ones that aren't from here. The ones that moved here. I guess the NIMBYism or whatever you want to call it. They uh but the truth of the matter is is northern BC Man, it's got so much space, so much opportunity, so few people. Terrace has 12,000 people. Smithers is less than 10. It's kind of like the Squamish of the north, but minus Vancouver. And I know from my time in Squamish, that was always sort of the funny thing. So, you know, I was living in Whistler and fishing in Squamish a lot. And when you're in Whistler, as you guys know, and we've talked about a bunch already today, you know, the mountain tells you what to expect in the river. So... When you're in Whistler, you have a pretty good idea of when it's time to, to make the drive to Squamish and do some fishing. For whatever reason, a large component of that Vancouver angling community is very reactive. They want the people at the fishing store to tell them that it's been good before they make the drive. Uh, they're not willing to, for whatever reason, bird dog it and get out there early. And my best memories on the Squamish, and you know, we've been up here since 2015, so it's been a while, but my best memories of the Squamish are those days when it's either blown in the morning and coming back in the afternoon, or it's on its way out and you, you manage to fish the lower river before it it goes completely chocolate milk. And there's not a lot of people out there. Usually it's raining sideways. That's my best memories of the Squamish is being out there in the inclement weather with a, with a ray of hope that something good can happen. I do want to ask you guys, um, especially you Kai and, and also Riley Feet, by all means, too. But thinking about, you know, multi-sport type trips, you know, have you done much of that? Do you have much planned? I'm talking about stuff where you're going to ski and fish in the same day or, or maybe it's surfing. Who knows? Tell, tell me what you're thinking of.
3: I mean, yeah, for sure. Um, like, I think the adventure aspect of all of those is what drives me and um, you know I, I guess yeah there's those people like you're talking about in the city that maybe want to just be told that it's good and they go um for me i'd I'd much rather i think from what i know i think that's kind of how the whole steelheading thing originated from the beginning is it's, it's because it's that adventure and uh you know having to read the the mother nature like we talked about is more interesting to me so I think, like, uh, if you can connect both, uh, it's really cool, obviously. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, this spring, I really I want to make it back up in uh, March, April, up to your neck of the woods and try to line up good conditions for both. You know, it, it's like, if it was good all the time it wouldn't it wouldn't be as fun to try to seek those moments you know it's like every wave If every wave in the ocean was perfect it i don't think it'd be that fun to go surf or if every day was a powder day on the hill i think i don't think powder skiing would be that unique or catching a steelhead for that matter so i think for the rest of my life i'll always be driven by trying to find that perfect wave or that perfect run or um that perfect powder day and yeah, this th- I think um, you probably already know. I'm I'm pretty jazzed to make it back up north in the spring and get some really good powder skiing and and steelhead fishing together. Um, you know, and and I'm I'm actually um, in Hawaii right now on the North Shore. I didn't come here to fish or surf. Really, I came here just to kind of get away for a quick little bit before winter kicks off at home. But uh, while I'm here, I end up going trying to find big bonefish once in a while and then and surf in the same in the same day often so it's it's a driving force uh you know it's like in the skiing thing too i've been doing it for so long that i've always looked up to guys like um my in my dad's era that kind of discovered all the you know things we know today in backcountry skiing or not all but a lot of particularly in you know from whistler to alaska you know and and it was really an adventure for them trying to you know be the first to ski these places and uncover these locations and riley knows i'm always like driven by that trying to you know i i don't want to go ride the same thing in the zone that everyone's filming at every winter in whistler so i'll you know i'll often be like walking or sledding or whatever to like around the next corner trying to you know find the next pillow field in the woods um and, uh, it's the same thing with fishing. I'd much rather go fish a river that I have never fished and try to figure it out. And, uh, you know, maybe like um, this past, uh, yeah, this past summer I did a trip solo trip Well, me and a buddy on my, my jet ski and went 70 kilometers up a remote inlet on the coast and then biked and hiked and camped for a few days on a river that we thought there was fish at and ended up finding them and that that to me is like way more of a unique experience than you know going to the squamish river when you've heard there's been fish caught in that week and going to the same run everyone drives to and walking in it's just like yeah sweet it's fun to fish but it's like for me it's way more fun to you know complete that puzzle like was talking about earlier so if you can complete two puzzles together with skiing and fishing or any other sport that's the ultimate for me
1: Riley you you and I have kids so you know we have to be a little bit more precise with our trips and our plans what what do you think uh are, are we all going back up north this spring or what boys <laughs>
0: i think I could find a I could find a way to justify it for sure yeah
1: I'm just worried that my boat trailer will make it up there
0: that's right you've got you've got a, a boat and a jet now
1: yeah, it's old, but it goes. That's
0: good. I think we got to do it.
1: I think it all it hinges on Brian. We'll camp in the yard. Sure. Just let us use the hot tub.
0: <laughs> we'll be the skier scoundrels.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, you guys are always welcome. Speaking of uh, speaking of skiing, when we when we did the movie, and I I reached out to you guys and said, "Hey, I'd, I'd love to get you up here." I was really enthusiastic on the ski side. Because for me, uh, making the move from Whistler up here, I kind of figured my skiing days were done. And then, you know, having children, priorities change a little bit. And I'm not looking to make the raddest turns I've ever, ever made at 50. I am more looking at this as something hopefully I can do for another 20 years till my kids can surpass me at it. But from a from a skiing in the north standpoint, one thing I really found was that the ski community here is pretty spoiled. Very, very, very. Set on powder skiing um, days when we we don't have fresh snow, you don't see a lot of people up the ski hill. Backcountry skiing is a big part of it. You guys did come up and do some skiing when you were here uh, up at Shames, and it was not ideal conditions. It was probably the first time, and I'm not making this up; it's true. This is probably the first time I've been to Shames, and there wasn't snow on the trees. It was in a sort of um, not quite bulletproof, but very firm pack type conditions. But I think we still had a good time. Um, any thoughts, you guys, on on skiing in the north?
3: It's sick. <laughs> it's, it, the mountains there are, are epic. Like you know, Brian, we 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 ended up catching steelhead within sight of the the, the ski area, which is pretty wild. Um, so to to be able to like ski powder seven k from from where there's fish is is pretty unique. But that doesn't mean the skiing's just okay. The mountains up there around the resort are mind blowing. There's huge spine lines like right across from Shames. And yeah, I, I just think it I think it's definitely world class skiing in the, in that area. So yeah, to have world class fishing and skiing next to each other's I I don't know if you can find many other places
0: like it.
1: Riley, you've been up there before?
0: Yeah, I did a did a trip up there. Um skiing uh maybe five years four or five years ago i've been up there a handful of times for skiing but um that was my second kind of time up shames and the resort experience is just so refreshing we come from you know the south coast here with whistler this mega resort corporate company that just you have you've kind of there still is this Oh, it's almost like underground community feel in Whistler. If you've been here a long time, you'll find that. But if you're just visiting there, you don't get any of that feel. It's just a huge, huge resort. But you get up to Shames and it's like you're instantly welcomed into the community. It's a co-op resort that's community run and... It's you just you instantly feel welcome. everyone's friends everyone's knows everyone's name and you know people are barbecuing in the tailgating in the uh in the parking lot at the end of the day. People are up there with their campers spending the weekend up there with their friends and their family and it's a skiing experience that it's that is actually hard to find these days. There's not many of those kind of small uh resorts like that left, and especially there's not many with access to that kind of terrain and incredible snow. So um, sure, we didn't hit the best conditions up there, but uh, you can see the potential. And even though, you know, that we still had some awesome spring laps and lapping with a bunch of the locals there, it's the, we got the full Shames experience. It's just like, it's such a refreshing place to go skiing.
1: We we cooked hot dogs in the parking lot. So you can't beat that. Yeah. Brian, to be honest, I'll speak for all the boys. I mean, I've, I've been... The deepest ski day of my life was heli skiing with Northern Escape up there. So I think we're we're just waiting for you to land a chopper in the uh, yard of the lodge there, and we'll ski as much as you want, man.
3: <laughs> right on. <laughs> well, I, I've seen it done before. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure there might be some helicopters landing there. <laughs> um, so
2: speaking of skiing, um, I've been a, a ski movie fan my whole life. Um, one of one of my most memorable days was my first day skiing deep powder on Grouse Mountain, on the part of their, you know, kids' ski program. And they took us in at lunchtime, and it was probably like late 80s. And Blizzard of Oz had just come out. And I remember watching Blizzard of Oz on our lunch break in the little room there before they turned us back out to attack Purgatory off the off the top of the peak chair. And, you know, ever since then, I've been a huge ski movie fan. And and obviously, we see northern BC consistently popping up in matchstick movies and other other production companies as well. But one of my favorite uh, ski movies that I've seen recently was the series you guys did, Riley and Kai, last year. Um, can we talk about that real quick? And then also if there's there's plans for for any more of those.
3: Yeah, um, Riley and I are currently working on uh, uh, another piece to that series right now, um, which just right around the new year, I think we'll we'll drop it. But yeah, it's been really fun. It's, it's titled Sacred Grounds. You can find, uh, you can find it on, on YouTube. Um, and it's kind of just a, a, a profile, you know, like kind of like what, what I was just talking about. Like for me, it's, my drive's always been, you know, like finding those special places and going on a bit of adventure to find them. Um, this final episode is a little different in that sense of the previous ones have been all kind of wild locations and, all within, you know, mostly right in my backyard, but kind of those far out, hard to find spots that are really special. But this this one's a little bit more of a lifestyle profile and like what to me is so special and sacred about um, the places right in front of us, um, which could be somewhere like you know the the closest run to your house you fish all the time, or or a small co runs ski hill like like shames you know um and just those places that mean a lot to you and are really special and it's kind of what this is all about we we do a, uh, showcase a little bit of fishing and a little bit of skateboarding and uh, of my that i do and in my home spots that i was
0: born and raised so yeah it's, it's kind of a different piece than the rest I think people like it. It's like a little bit more relatable. You got some like good resort shredding in there too. And, and then you've got like the four that you did before that, where you guys should go check out sacred grounds. It's like some of the most groundbreaking, crazy skiing you'll, you've seen in a, in a long time. So, you know, um, but I also like Kai's put a lot of effort into kind of the, um, you know, the, Storytelling and kind of the um, what he wants to say in these uh, pieces as well. So it's um, you know you get uh, you get a little bit of you know what's going through Kai's mind when he's uh, either skiing these big lines or or just ripping around the hill. So I like I like that aspect of the of the series too.
3: Yeah, and I think you you kind of get the feel of that um, you know that team effort thing too. You know, like uh, some of the previous ones have been. Most of them have been... This one's a little shorter, but a lot of them have showcased only my best friends I ski with often that are in there. And then also behind the scenes and the production side of things, like working with with Riley, editing it, and uh, some of my best friends filming it. It's it's really just... We put together this series all with a group of people that are really tight and good friends. And yeah, so it's just really unique to... And special to me to create these um, these films and and share these times in the mountains together with these people. So it's different than, you know, just getting a call up from a production company to like, hey, come here and film this. And like your sponsor dollars are paying them. So you got to go do this. It's like this is more of just like, like these are passion projects for for me, which is um, really what I, I love about them.
1: And And that's what makes them watch, you know, so much different, unique. I mean, I'll say better in my opinion than a lot of the other stuff out there, right? Because your heart's in it. It's not a, it's not a job. You're not doing this as a job, right? You're doing this because it's an experience that you're having and you want to capture. And it's with people that you care about.
3: Yeah. I think we'd get burned out on it a lot quicker if that wasn't part of the whole deal.
2: You know, ski movies and and we're a long way from fishing right now, aren't we? But ski movies are, are important because, you know, they, they get you excited. They inspire you. Um, But, but, it's the story aspect versus the music video style that really gets me. And and I think that's why I really enjoyed the series you guys uh, launched last year feet. I really enjoyed your ski movie too. I haven't watched it for over a year now, but uh, it's definitely a standalone piece. Um, It's, it's
1: definitely music video style, but it's from the year 2000, right? So, so that's the way we used to do it. I wonder though about fishing movies. I don't watch that many. I watch almost no ski movies except for Kai's and Riley's. I don't watch any fishing movies really um i just don't seem to have them in my life but is there a danger Brian, with fishing movies where the, did they did they ever go into that music video style or were they always more story driven you know and and location driven
2: all right well i remember the first time i talked to somebody who was making a fishing movie now he didn't make the first fishing movie but but he was darn close the gentleman's name is tom by If that sounds familiar, it's because at one point he was the editor of Powder Magazine. So there's a tie-in. And, man, I hope I get this right. I think his movie was called Feeding Time. And, you know, it had some bonefish in it. It had some other stuff. And Tom went off to start a magazine, which still is one of the best fishing magazines. I don't know if it's being produced still. But, you know, it was. Hopefully it's still being produced. It's called The Drake. And so that was Tom's baby. And it was a different type of fishing magazine. Feet, I know uh, it, it was more, it was the type of fishing magazine that would hire you to write an article. Your style would fit good there. But the fishing experience, you know, it doesn't really lend itself well to the music video thing. I think it, it absolutely lends itself well to the story. I grew up, so my father had this collection of old. Fishing magazines um, like Western Fishing Game; these are BC fishing magazines. Predates BC Outdoors. This is stuff from like the 60s and the 70s. I was born in 73, and so I remember reading these magazines. This is obviously way before the internet. And the articles that I can still recall were the were kind of like the me and Joe type. Like you know, okay, we're going to go on this fishing trip, and here's what happened. Almost like a travel log type of deal versus, hey, you know, go to this spot, stand on this rock, tie on this fly, not the how to, but it's the story stuff, the journey ones. And I think that there's definitely room for for more fishing movies that that, you know, take you on an adventure. And obviously the piece that we did with the Winter Steelheading thing, um, you know, it has an element of that, but but I even think that there's room for a longer form, you know, fishing adventure. I, I remember reading the article, Kai, about your your trip to the Dean and thinking, hey, that, that would have been kind of a, a neat movie.
3: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it could have been a cool movie. Yeah, it, it, It's all about the adventure, you know, um, I think in in a fishing film. So, yeah, being able to share that adventure is pretty fun for others to listen, I think.
1: Riley wrote that article, so. Oh,
0: nice. Yeah, it would have, would have been an interesting movie. You could watch me have a mental breakdown on the side of the Dean River. It would have been great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that does sound good.
0: How was the journey
3: with the jet ski, though? Um, yeah, it was. It was the whole thing in a in a hole was a journey. Was, was quite the journey, um, but I think yeah, a good film can capture all those emotions that these kind of adventures entail. So that's, I guess, yeah. That that's why you know that would have been a maybe a cool film because because of all that that went into it.
1: I think a lot of people don't understand how difficult it is to make a good film. Uh, and, and a good fishing film, maybe especially if you're going that far out. Like even what we did, you know, we had Sherpa, like one of the best camera operators in the business, full stop, uh, you know, who also understands fishing intimately and loves it. And, and then Riley, you know, you've been editing and, and making things, films for a long time. It's not like you can just throw a GoPro in your bag and, and make a fishing movie of you totally can, but it's not going to look like, you know, what What we were able to put together on that trip to Terrace. And I think a lot of people don't understand that the talent behind the movie really makes a difference on how the movie comes out. You know, we we had excellent talent on this movie, Riley, yourself included.
0: I think it's maybe people, you know, you come from the, the ski filmmaking side of things and you're working in tough conditions and, um, you know, you're out there in blizzards or whatever. Um, so those are the kind of the skills that lend themselves to the the fishing filmmaking as well it's just kind of skills you build over your career i yeah. guess but but yeah we totally. had some great people
1: that's not to say you shouldn't throw a, back, a gopro in your backpack and go make a fishing movie like you definitely should but it's not gonna look probably like like sherpa shot it right or like you edit it like it's a these are professionals at the top of their game you got to grow into and that's you know why for me i used to make movies and now i don't because they never look as good as i want them to look because I can't afford a professional cameraman or or that kind of thing,
0: and because there's no way you're ever going to top heavy hitting there. It's like <laughs> I guess you yeah. peaked a little early.
1: Well, we yeah. watched that Bigfoot movie. I did. I peaked. Yeah. It. I don't know. I don't. I don't know when I peaked, but I'm sure that it's happened. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
3: I think I think sometimes people just walk into into sharing this like amazing vibe, and uh, but otherwise it, it's pretty it's pretty difficult to capture the true essence of the, all those emotions and the vibe. Um, you guys obviously put a lot of passion and emotion into that film, Parental Advisory. And it, like it shook the world. Like I would, you know, feet knows I was, uh that movie changed my life for sure. Along with many others. And uh, sometimes it, it's hard to recreate those for sure. <laughs> but uh, even like the, the GoPro thing, like you, it you can. It's definitely sick to go film whatever and do that, but it's pretty hard to capture the real essence of what those adventures are like without the skills of a
0: solid team.
1: Yeah, and and proper microphones and all that stuff, right? Like,
0: but maybe maybe that's part of the beauty, and that's why it's um, you know, maybe that's why there's not as many people doing it is because it's difficult, and people would rather just go enjoy the experience for themselves, which. Don't get me wrong. I love love filmmaking, but I love even more just going out and doing that stuff with my friends, with no one to no one to watch it yeah. at the end of the day.
1: No camera bag for on your sure. backpack.
0: Yeah, big time. I think you
3: gotta you gotta do enough of that as well to even have a chance at, at trying to capture it for other people to see.
2: The uh, one of the best parts of that movie is feet when you've got your fish on, and and Sherpa's running down the bank with the camera. Yeah. It, you know, it's not a setup, perfect shot. He's just capturing it like it's happening. And it really puts you in that moment and it was very relatable for me because sometimes as a fishing guide, you know, you're not right next to the person has the fish on. So you want to get there as quick as possible. So you grab the net and you just run and go for it. And that sequence there really captured the the camaraderie, the the team part of it, you know, every, everyone's equally stoked. And as a father, I think that as my kids get older, when they catch their first steelhead on a fly, I'll probably think that's the best fish I've ever seen.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. I thought Kai and Riley caught some pretty nice fish on this trip, though. But Brian, my kid caught a, a steelhead on the bar rod with you without even trying and landed it like a pro. It's the first time he's ever landed a fish bigger than, you know, two or, two or three pounds. And, uh, yeah, the fact that he could do it without, uh, even really given a care at all about fishing uh, just rub salt in the wound of me when I lose big fish after years and years of toil.
2: I, your dad was stoked <laughs> though. I remember that your dad. Was...
1: No, I was stoked that that picture's on my fridge. That's a nice looking fish that that kid caught.
2: Dude,
0: that was a beautiful steelhead. Do you think, do you think steelhead can sense desperation on the end of the line?
1: Yeah, I think they can, especially the females. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You bring up a point, Riley, I can tell you that I've never seen, you know, the, there's a few things that clients will do that kind of annoy you. They don't have to be clients. it could just be people. Uh, two of the top ones might be people who wear cologne on the river. Another one might be people who wear earbuds on the river. Um, but But the one that really drives you crazy is the dude who's standing there going, man, I need a fish. I need a fish. Just shut up. That guy's never going to get a bite. I've never seen anybody say, "I need a fish and then get one." I can't explain it. I don't know why it doesn't happen. Whereas the happy-go-lucky dude who's confident but doesn't feel that the river owes him anything, that guy will find a fish on whatever fly you tie on. But yeah, the "I need a fish" guy just never gets one.
3: Yeah, it's funny how it works in a flurry like that sometimes too. You know, you'll maybe you you have a a little a run of time where you you they're landing fish. And then, you know, you lose a few, like I had a bit of a streak this fall and you, you know, you start losing a few, you start overthinking everything and wanting a fish more. And it just gets harder and harder when that happens. It's always when you get into a flow and you, you're just, you know, in that kind of meditation mode of just going through the, the steps that all of a sudden you get one, you know, but whenever you want it too bad or you try too hard it doesn't seem to work as well.
2: (laughs) The other one that's really cool, and this might be, you know, we talked about the anticipation of going fishing. We talked about the anticipation of getting a bite when you're out there, but you know, I love it when someone's telling me their fishing story and they're like, man, I just, I I felt like I was going to get one there. And because I can kind of rationalize that I can say, well, you probably felt that way because the way the line swung, you were in the best spot. The fish felt the same way. That's it was there. But that feeling of being in the zone, that confidence, man, that's, just so key
1: yeah yeah
3: i think that lends to that consistency too which is what leads to success
1: yeah and i think having the right owning your own gear probably helps too like for for a few of those first years brian i didn't have a spay rod the only time i spay rod was spay cast was when i was up on the skeena with you guys and by the time i get back there a year later i don't even remember really what i'm supposed to be doing with it so it was like starting from zero every single time i went fishing. And uh, that makes it more difficult, for sure. Whereas if you, you know, get yourself some gear, it doesn't have to be the best gear on earth, but as long as it works, then you can get out and practice and you're going to enjoy the practicing. You're efficient, right? It's one of the best things you can do. And then, you know, by the time a big trip or, a, you know, the trip of a lifetime does come up, you're that much more ready and you're going to probably have a way better time.
0: Yeah, the experience thing you you definitely start to clue into some of those feels and like i was saying about reading the water and stuff you'll start at maybe the top of a run and you know you can just feel that's not quite right so you're doing three or four steps in between casts but then you feel that swing where it just starts to line up a little bit better and suddenly you catch yourself like doing little half steps through that section because you're like oh this is this is feeling like where it's going to happen but it was uh I don't know, for me, it was a long, long time until I kind of felt that felt, felt that feeling kind of, you know, it's almost um, subliminal or just a subconscious, I guess, that you feel like, oh, this could be right. But I you think know, it just comes with time.
2: I think a product of that is when, you, when, you're, when you ha- you're carrying that confidence with you, you've had a few fish and you expect every little bump is a steelhead. Then you have the confidence to repeat the cast to maybe change a fly to just move like you said slow it down give that piece of water a better soak because that weird little bump you just felt you know that was a fish versus the guy that doesn't have the confidence who thinks it's a leaf or a trout or what have you Kai, what were you gonna say
3: oh i think i was just gonna say how the feel thing steelheading is so unique to all their types of fishing in that sense there's so much of a feel feel thing that goes into it um but yeah, and and to what you were just saying, like the, w- one of my best friends, who's the the best steelhead guide I know, every every fish is a steelhead, every bump's a steelhead. That confident, I think that's that's super important. And uh, he's always like, you know, I'll I'll be fishing with him like for for summer runs or whatever, and he's like, you see a little bubble or a, some fish rising, you're know, like, it looks like a tiny little two pound trout. You're like, ah, oh. he's like. He's like, oh, whatever, steelhead rolling or whatever. Like something rolls on his skated fly. And it's like you're like, oh like that that, that was a tiny little trout. And you're like, there's no, there's no way. That's sure enough, five minutes later he hooks a big a big steelhead and you're you're yeah. just like, What the hell? But he's always got that that mindset that it's um like you say, that it, you know, every leaf or stick or bump is a fish. And I think that goes a long way in that the mental the you know the mental side of it which leads to success
1: optimism optimism is the foundation upon which good times are built because often you're suffering
0: yeah you need to be optimistic when you're winter steelhead for sure
1: and patient
0: (laughs) patient too
3: and that goes for the mountains too right like i think that's where steelhead like fishing and skiing really collide is you know you have to like believe that that day is going to line up where that face fills in properly and the, the sun's in the right place. And, uh, you know, the avalanche conditions are settled and yeah. So like, yeah, you, you have to, you have to have that drive and, and, uh, and belief that it does come together. and You know, when it does is the days best days of our lives.
2: Nice. Well, guys, I think that's a great way to wrap up our chat. I will put the link to the new Sacred Grounds episode up on our page. I will also put a link to the the Skeena Steelhead movie. Before uh, before I let you go, Feet, how can people find uh, find you online?
1: Ah, uh, you can you can go to uh, the magazine MountainLifeMedia.ca. Uh, That's the best. I'm the editor of the Coast Mountains edition of that. We're coast to coast. And if you're into uh, profanity and uh, interesting off-topic stuff, uh, you can go to piequarterly.com. That's my own personal little uh, online shitstorm.
2: (laughs) Right on. Hey, guys, I really appreciate it. And uh, look forward to seeing you up here on the river this spring. Be a real treat.
1: Sounds awesome to me. Thanks, Brian. Likewise. Thanks, guys.
2: Well, folks, I appreciate you listening in today with Kai, Feet, and Riley. I hope you will consider joining us next time on In the Bucket, when I'll be speaking with Scott Baker-McGarva and Dax Massett. Scott and Dax are veteran steelhead guides with some great stories and fishing advice. Until then, I'm your host, Brian Niska, and I look forward to bringing you our next episode of In the Bucket.